0: Torah reading called Tetzaveh, and Tetzave covers Exodus twenty-seven verse twenty and goes through chapter thirty verse ten. And we picked up some of the companion passages there from uh, the um, Ezekiel forty-three, looking at the temple. That uh, you'll notice that uh, the dimensions, especially when we get into talking about the altar. The altar of burnt offering that that is uh, uh, definitely bigger because the building itself, the temple that is described there in Ezekiel is huge huge and it uh, you can read about it in Ezekiel forty and it goes from forty through forty eight through the end of the book but what we also took a look at are some of the passages there from Hebrews uh, chapter 13, and also these passages we picked up from Deuteronomy 25 and First Samuel 15, which are looking specifically at this command to deal with Amalek. We saw that a few Torah passages back about Amalek came up, attacked Israel when Israel was coming out after you know shaking off with the help of God, shaking off the power of Egypt, then you had these sneak attack folk, Amalek, that came up and were not attacking them from the front but coming up onto the rear of them now when you're when you're thinking about an incredible fighting force and you come around and go around the flank i that's just good strategic thinking, good tactics to come around and fight the areas that are weakest. But everybody is there to fight. But this is a whole group of people. This is the entire people coming. So they were trying to attack just regular folk, the the women, children, older folk who are not, their job is not to fight. So they're trying to avoid those who are actually going to fight. So it sounds quite similar in a sense to what we were looking at before when Egypt came out to try to get Israel back as slaves, cornered them They're up against the sea. At that point, you're not talking about a fantastic fighting force but they were just going to come and attack them at pretty much their weakest point. Their back was against the sea and a kind of a similar arena for that. So with this, what we're going to talk about here today is what we touched on last week. And this is one of the most important things as we build up to look into uh, the book of Leviticus is why are we here? Why are we at the mountain? Why are we at the mountain? Why are we then also here looking at the tabernacle? We started off last week looking at the tabernacle construction. And again, good thing to remember with this is this passage here from Exodus 25, which we saw last time around. Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture. So you shall construct it. So this is a pattern. This is a pattern that was shown of the dwelling place in heaven. And as we were kind of hinting at last week, this pattern is something that is an image, a likeness of it, a form, as it is the uh, Tavnit is the way that that's described there in Hebrew. Uh, Deborah, do you have a comment or a, a question?
1: These patterns and every every little thing that we're doing are very significant. And I'm wondering, if these things going on in the heavenly realms, you know, the worship the angels do or the people mm-hmm. that they do too. So we are learning, like we're preparing for, for, for a future world to come priesthood, right? And then the second question was, um, it says that God said to come to him and minister him, to him. And I was thinking... What could you humanly possibly minister to him, the creator of the universe? So I thought, is it just ministering to him that our cares and worries and, you know, is it like having a conversation with a friend? Yeah. So, well, you know, it's, those patterns.
0: Yeah, it's, it's very uh, similar to what you had talked about there with um, talking to a friend, but one of the things that we're, we looked at specifically in this passage here today is the fact that this altar of incense, we meet it again in the book of Revelation, and there it's talking about the martyrs, those that have lost their lives, and their cry is going up that when it talks about their blood from under the altar, what does that sound like? It sounds a lot like what we saw back in Genesis, where you had the Lord talking with Cain, saying, hey, the blood of your brother, Havel, Abel, is crying out from the ground, crying out. The innocent has been taken down by the violent. And the Lord is, didn't forget that, didn't overlook it, that did not escape the sight of the Lord. But just like you see in Revelation, that cry that's going out, how long? How long is this going to persist where the violent are going to dominate and take down the innocent? How long is that going to go on? And that is what a picture of that altar of incense is there for. It's to show, hey, this incense going up, it is something that the Lord is aware of. It's right in front of Him, all the time. This, the prayers of the faithful going up saying hey how long is this going to go on so when you look at the the tabernacle structure itself we were talking a bit about that last time around and you see the the various elements of it you know we had mentioned this previously and passing about how it's kind of like these uh, very similar to the sensory organs of a person and a picture of the sensory organs of God, because really what we're talking about here is this, they go to the mountain, they go through the sea, they go to the mountain. Well, now the one who dwells on the mountain is now going to dwell with this mountain of a sort right in their midst, right camped in the middle of them as they go along. This would be the dwelling place that's, the one who inhabited the mountain was going to follow along with them. And, you know, very similar, you see that the levels like they were on the mountain are somewhat analogous to the areas of the tabernacle. You know, here we have like the top of the mountain described in blue, and we have the area of the most holy place in blue and the area mid-level of it in kind of an orange-yellowish thing, and the holy place of the tabernacle area in described similarly. And then the bottom, the base of the mountain, is like a green area, and analogous to the courtyard inside the curtain boundary of the tabernacle. So we see that very, and a bit of an analogy here, is that the top of the mountain, that's where Moshe went but he had an open access. He was invited to go up the mountain. We saw that in one of our previous Torah passages. He was invited to go up the mountain, but it was by invitation. He just didn't waltz in there on his own. He was invited to go in. So very similar in that, uh, you know, Kodesh HaKodeshim or the Holy of Holies, you have Aharon was invited invited in when we'll read that as we move along in the account especially as we get into leviticus of when that invitation is and we'll see <laughs> you see that uh aharon's four sons mentioned well two of them encounter a big issue with going in within, without an invitation it would be one way to put that and then you see like the priests you um the priests will go into the you know, ha-kodesh, or the the holy place, and the place of where the um, the menorah is, the, the bread, the table of bread is where the altar of incense is, that area, and where the curtain is, that havdalah that divides the holy place from the most holy place. And... That's being an area where the priesthood goes up, well, you might remember some accounts of who went kind of the mid level up the mountain where we've seen so far. Yes, the seventy went up, so you kind of got the main kind of um, representatives. these are the leaders of the people, and then you got um, jehoshua, Joshua went up part way up the mountain as well. so those people who are kind of in in that important Service, but not like at the tip top of service to the king of heaven and earth that that is where they go midway up and then the bottom the bottom was you're supposed to put a barrier around the base of the mountain so that the people just don't rush up and head on up the mountain so that area is where you have the courtyard area but they are prepped to go in and we'll go on as we see they have to prep themselves they have to both prepare for it prepare for it in their hearts their hearts have to be ready to approach and then as we move on we'll see in leviticus they have to be fit to approach we'll see that tahor and tamay the clean unclean or fit to approach the presence of God and unfit to approach is a better way to put that. So very similarly, we see that with the construction of the tabernacle. So in a a sense, you could see that the tabernacle is something that is transporting this direct experience with God there at the Mount Sinai, taking them with them. And We should also say that when we get into the apostolic writings, and it's talking about our bodies, and the Apostle Paul writes that our bodies are a temple for the Spirit of God to dwell in. It's like that Sinai experience moving along with us again. So yes, the the Mishkan, or the dwelling place, the tent, saw the various... The ways that it's described, the tent of the testimony, the tent of the meeting place, the tent of the appointment with God, all of those various things are like a moving mountain that goes with us. In each of these aspects here, you've got the Ark of the Covenant. It is all, remember, we saw last week, it's the Ark of the Testimony. This is a direct testimony of who the Creator of heaven and earth is. We don't have to guess we don't have to go some guru to try to figure it out the lord reveals who he is what his character is and thus our character you know like master like follower so thus we see like into the gospels the our master messiah yeshua we follow the master what the master's revealing And we see like in the Gospel of John, when you see the apostles, they're asking, well, show us the Father. And what is Yeshua's response? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. And we see in Hebrews chapter 1 as it talks about that Yeshua is the direct representation, the direct image of the creator of heaven and earth. So thus, when we've seen like when Moshe is told on the mountain, hey, build this. Build this thing that you are being shown, just like what you're shown on the mountain. Thus, it is this pattern is what a representation of the things and the aspects, the character, the testimony of heaven, because it's called the tent of the testimony. So how much more then is the tent made flesh as we meet there in John chapter 1? The tabernacle made flesh. The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So how much more then is this a representation? So show us the father. You have that with the Messiah. The Messiah is showing us the father. So when we see that new covenant prophecy there in Jeremiah 31, and it says, they will all know me from the least to the greatest. We see that one of the most important missions of the Messiah is to reveal the Father. Why? What? Just for knowledge? Something to store away for the next trivia game? No, it is for you to know, to have a relationship with. That's the importance of a testimony, because if you are being a part of a family. People in a family know each other. And you know what happens in a family if they stop having that close connection, where they lose track of each other over time. You know what happens with friends if you lose track or you don't keep up a connection? Your lives run separately from each other. And then what happens when you get together? It's really hard. You can talk about the things that happened long ago. But who are you now? People you knew 20, 30 years ago. People change. Hopefully you mature, you grow over that time period. And are we to relate to each other as the uh, <laughs> crazy uh, crazy people that we were 20, 30 years ago? Or as the mature people here today? So that is what's the importance of having... The creator of heaven and earth dwelling in our midst and then traveling with us where we go so like what we were kind of hinting at these various elements that we have in the tabernacle are roughly kind of um, synonymous or symbolic of the aspects of senses you know the ark of the testimony the ark of the covenant like the brain the heart where you think where your emotions are that is the tablets of the testimony the tablets of the ten words the ten commandments that reveals who the lord actually is and the altar of incense like the nose and we'll see it's referred to and we get out to the altar of burnt offering but also that soothing aroma that goes up to the lord Now, you might think, hey, there's some sort of a lesson going on here because when you think soothing aroma going up to the Lord, if you've ever had to either deal with uh, carcasses of things that have like rotted or you're having to burn up a whole lot of stuff, is that a soothing aroma? No, not in the slightest. However, it is revealed here that the Lord considers this to be a soothing aroma. So thus, as a part of the lesson, what is being burned up? Just You're just uh, burning up livestock and various things you throw on there? Or is it that you have come in, the people have come in, that is a representation of them. They are going up, just like in the altar of incense there before the veil, the prayer is going up into the nose, the sense of smell. You smell this, and that smell is sweet, whether it's the incense of the prayers of the people who, who, who um, believe God, who follow God, or it is themselves there at the altar, and that going up and being all consumed in it. And then you see aspects of the eyes with the, the menorah, the the candlestick the seven branch candlestick shining light onto the bread so the candlesticks the menorah shining light onto the bread and you see later that the bread is a picture of the 12 tribes of Israel and what they do who they are and you see that represented in the gospels where you see in the gospel of John Yeshua says I am the what of life. I am the bread of life. That body, the body of Israel, body of Israel. And then you see also uh, with the mouth aspects of it, with the altar. So with that, one of the uh, things that we'll be closing out here with is a picture of of the, the clothing of the priest, picture of the clothing of the high priest and what he's wearing. Some very interesting things when we talk about the symbols of it, the symbols of it. We read there that on his shoulders, these onyx stones, These onyx stones, one in each shoulder, what is written on them, engraved on each one of those things? The names of the tribes of Israel, six on one, six on the other. And it specifically tells us, we don't have to guess what that is representing. What does it say? So that he shoulders in the names, he shoulders in the character, the people of those 12 tribes in. And so you think, the shoulders of it, the shoulders of the high priest are bearing in the weight of the tribes of Israel, the whole people of God. And the breast piece, that this breast piece that's talked about there, and the breast piece talks about that has 12 stones in there and each one of those are carved with, One of the names of the tribes. So you have it, the shoulder of the high priest bearing the load, bearing the load, the burden of the tribes, of all the people of God. The priest on his heart, it says that they will cover over his heart. So all of the tribes will be upon his heart as he goes in, and they will be a memorial so that whatever the high priest is going in, the high priest's heart is sort of beating with the tribes of Israel. Then when you go into what's inside, because as it talks about, the breast piece is like a pocket. It's got a pocket behind it. And it talks about folding over and stuff like that, and then you put the, the urim and the tumim into it. Now, the urim and the tumim you know, Urim just means lights. And Tumim can be translated a couple of different ways. It, strictly speaking, it kind of doesn't work in English, but it, strictly speaking, is completenesses. We don't ever say that. So that's why you'll often see it kind of translated as, uh, as something like um, it being perfections or something like that. But you'll is a word in Hebrew that just means complete. It has reached its complete, but it's also kind of the, one of those quirky Hebrew words that's plural, even though it usually has a singular meaning to it. Water is another example. Ma'im, it's a plural form of it, but it is always rendered as in the singular. But this completeness is it. That's your offering that you are to bring in. We'll see that as we move on into Leviticus. The offering that you bring into the front gate of the Mishkan, into the dwelling place of God, it is to be Tamim. It's not to have any problems, no flaws, anything like that, anything that would cause you to say, hey, this is substandard. You bring it in. But you see a picture of this in The letter to James uh, Yaakov, there in the Apostolic Writings, chapter one, where he's talking about the trials that we face, the trials that we face in life. Each one of these things is to do what? To build perseverance. And that whole role of perseverance, patience, will lead us to be what? Mature and complete. It's the same word there in Greek that's translated as tamim, meaning complete in the Hebrew Bible as well. So that picture of being a complete person, that's also when we met back in Genesis, we met <laughs> Yaakov Jacob. He is described as, uh, <laughs> it's kind of interesting how various translations put that. It's strictly speaking, he was a tom man or he was a complete man. But often it's rendered as uh, he was a mild man. But really, he was not seeking anything, which is kind of strange that it would word it like that because what ends up happening? His mother puts him up to say, hey, you're not complete. You're missing the birthright, which really should be yours. So she puts him up to getting back the birthright. And then you see through his whole experiences that come through his, his uncle and all that such that happens over with Laban and with his uh, first the wife that he wants and then the wife that he gets. And now he's got both of them together and all the trials that come through and meeting up with his brother again. You see that through all of that, he does end up becoming Tamim. He ends up becoming complete. We see him reunite with his brother. And he comes, we say, hat in hand to his brother. Say, look at all this stuff. All of it is in your hands. Have mercy on me. Yeah, yes, Alex, you have a comment or a question over here?
1: I, I enjoy watching the process of a lot of that stuff. <laughs> yes. so it, was, it was simple initially. I'll bet they, they were kind of reminiscent on the old days. It was just us. We built a temple right here. It was in a tent. Nobody bothered us. Well, by the time Solomon's Temple in the second, it's a spectacle at that point. <laughs> yes, They're buying stuff from the best craftsmen in the world, and Egypt knew about it. And then Hiram, the most powerful person at the time, helped them rebuild it. So, I mean, I guess it was meant to be a spectacle at that point. But initially here, it's just them and their little world. And God just worked it out. Hey, this is our little thing, right? No interference. Well, Amalek tried, but, you know, anyway. um, So, anyway, that's my thought.
0: Yes. Well, thank you. Uh, Yes, Anne has a comment or a question over there.
2: Yeah, looking at the picture you have there, the pomegranates have some kind of bells on them or something. Yes,
0: interspersed between them. You've got these, uh, they talk about the the linen... um, uh, pomegranates of d- different colors of thread, and then kind of around the hem you have you know, it has the pomegranates, and it's basically a bell that's there
2: so then, so the how did the pomegranates keep the priests from dying and uh, it kind of it's a, not me.
0: the not the pomegranates it's the bell
2: the bell i mean it says okay, that so
0: you'll hear the sound of it, the sound of the little gold bells around the hem, and thus you know you won't die. Well, it's it's one of those one of those pictures. We'll we'll see that when we encounter um Aharon's two um sons that don't make it and we get into Leviticus chapter ten. But basically you take this role very seriously. You know what is it that uh, we we have a an idiom saying we say coming with bells on. Well what, what does that mean? It says, coming with what? Coming with basically your whole intent to do your best, coming with bells on. And that is really something of utmost attention that the high priest should be thinking about all the time. That, hey, you have to have your mind in the game and really your heart in the game even before you even venture in.
2: Then connection to the bleeding of those sheep. With yes. Saul. Well, it's,
0: it's really, it's really good that you, you bring that up because we're we'll going kind to of close things out here with that uh, rendition that we saw of the, what Saul, what he was supposed to do, what he was supposed to do in, dealing with Amalek. Amalek was a force that was attacking attacking where you were weakest. Heaven saying, "Hey, the people who believe and behave like this, you know, they are just a detriment. You just have to deal completely take these people off the table." But what do we see those little um creeping incremental things that comes in what Saul does. He spares first, he spares Agog, spares the king. It was supposed to take him out. Kings are leaders. That's why when you have a one force takes over another force, if you're in leadership, uh usually doesn't go well for you. They come after the leaders. Why? Leaders are the rallying points. They rally people to go one direction or another. So Shool, Saul was supposed to take out Agog. He said, No. We'll we'll keep him. We we arrested him. And then we took his stuff. Took the best stuff. But not, not supposed to take the stuff, but he took the took the best stuff. And it's very interesting because it's something that we'll see an in instruction for uh, later on as we keep moving through the Torah, that you don't bring the, basically, we call them ill-gotten gains as an offering or contribution into the house of God. You don't bring those offerings in. So in a, in a sense, what was Saul's excuse? Well, I didn't. I didn't deal with the whole situation Just say everything that this culture has needs to end. He's like, ah, well maybe we can save some parts of it and kind of moving on. We have a couple of uh, comments over here. Maybe we can save some little parts of it and then, you know, bring those in as an, as an offering. We'll bring those in as an offering. First Rose, then uh Lirilla.
2: Well, in, in today's, in today's world, it's a
0: little crude, but I would, I would say that, uh, I went in, and uh, I killed uh, everybody in the gang, and then I kept the drug dealer, and
1: I kept his drugs and his money. And then I went to church on Sunday, and I gave an offering. Yes. That would be kind of like, uh,
0: you know, in today's world, what it would be like, what he had done. Yes. I you know, thinking he did God a favor. Indeed. Uh, by, uh, you know, uh, bringing some uh, offerings to God, but it was dirty money. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting that you see what the response is that the prophet brings forward in that. What is the response? You should recognize that because it's almost used, almost I verbatim later, by King David, who failed big time. You'll find it in the ending verses of Psalm 51. Because he says, and it's often taken horrifically out of context, he says, offerings you don't desire. What do you desire? Contrite heart. Uh, One that is broken spirit and a contrite heart. You won't despise. Yes. Uh, Larilla, please go ahead.
1: I have recently had an experience that when I read this, I was like, oh, this, this kind of works for me. Um, we had somebody who was saying, well, you know, I'm, I may be moving, and uh, how, is, how is this group going to function without my money? Mm. And my response in front of everybody was, if God can make bread out of stones, <laughs> he really doesn't need all this good stuff we think he needs. Yes, He's created everything. So Mm -hmm. why would we want to give him garbage? Because that's basically what it is. His his stuff is so much better. And we get so many more blessings out of it.
0: Yes. So what you see, it's another reminder of the aspects that the Mishkan, the dwelling place of God, this earthly embassy, this mobile representation of Sinai that travels around. It is a symbol of heaven. It is not a thing in and of itself that's a magic charm that if you do the right incantation, that you will get the right result. That's the way every other belief system works. If you do the right sort of incantation in the right order, you will get what you want. That's what all of the surrounding... Uh, Nations at the time period. That's the way their deities worked. You did the, whether you're talking about the Greek Empire, the Hittite Empire, the Babylonian Empire, all of their pantheons worked very similarly. You do it things in the right way, in the right order, then you will have a magic key that opens up the blessings of heaven. But here you see a testimony of how the creator of heaven and earth really looks at this stuff because it's like just like he was talking about with you yeah, know, he doesn't look at the outside he looks at the inside he looks at the heart so even if you are rolling in with all kinds of donations if the darkness in your heart is thick lord sees the darkness he's not looking at the gift uh yes and
2: um he was thinking about how Saul was saying, "Well, these people, I have to you know take care of these people, so that's why I left the sheep and 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 there was some verse about that, you know and but it also seemed to say that Saul made an idol of himself somehow
0: <laughs> glad so, you noticed that one yes, yes,
2: and um, and then you know the thing is, in the end, you know he's sounding like he's repenting, oh." Samuel, please speak mercy for me, you know, and take me back with the Lord. And, and you know, well, the Lord knew, and Sam, Samuel knew his heart was not right. I mean, yeah, Samuel really did kill Gog in the end. but uh, Agog, was it? A- mm-hmm. Whatever his name was. Yeah, but, um, you know, the trying to be repentant and not really be repentant is something that you really have to wonder about, you know, not. You think you're repenting, and you're not really repenting. I've
0: yeah. To know what it is you're actually repenting of.
1: That's
0: Shaul true. didn't seem to get it. Didn't seem to get what the issue was at hand. Uh, yes, uh, Lerila, you have a commentary question here.
1: He didn't really have any desire to repent until he heard that the kingdom was going to be huh. taken away from him. Yes. So trying to fool God is kind of pointless and rather stupid i mean god already knew what it was in his heart so no matter how much he play acted and you know put in the corner pushed the button yes. and expected the candy bar it's not going to happen because mm-hmm. god knows our hearts
0: yeah indeed so that yeah. is one of the, the great lessons we can get out of this particular passage pat you have your uh, hand up uh, go ahead please
2: well <laughs> The other thing that it shows when he keeps talking about it in front of his men, he, he was trying to save faith so that he didn't look bad in front of the other people. That's why he didn't want to lose his kingdom. He, he, it had nothing to do with faith in God. It's just, I don't want to look bad in front of the kingdom.
0: Yes, indeed. <laughs> we, we've heard that before, haven't we, too? Something with uh, <laughs> you see with the execution of Yohanan or John the Baptist. He says, the king said, hey, because of my oaths and such that he had already made, committing to his uh, daughter there, that hey, up to half the kingdom. No, yeah, that's why one of the key aspects that you get in the word is vows, oaths mean a whole lot. And something we mentioned before is that the reason why you see such a huge weight put upon vows and oaths to the point your own Messiah says, hey, it's just better that you don't make them than to make them and not do them. Reason being is because heaven makes vows and oaths to us. The Bible's full of them from beginning to end about vows and oaths, but he's kept them all. And that is a part of the testimony of the Lord that he's kept them all. And if we kind of treat vows and oaths as like, ah, you know, you can keep them if you want to. Maybe they mean something, maybe they don't. Then what are we supposed to think about the vows and oaths that the Lord makes to us? Are those, eh, maybe you depend on them, maybe you don't. Uh, Maybe heaven's up for it, maybe it's not. Yes, uh, Larry.
1: I've often wondered what would have happened if, if salome had said, okay, I'll take half your kingdom. <laughs> so, yeah, get out of here, kid. <laughs> <laughs> get out
0: of here. Kid. Yeah, good, good point with that. All right, well, that's where we're going to go here so far on this particular passage. And as we get ready for our, our run through of the book of Esther in truncated form, these themes show up a lot in that particular book of Esther the themes of what promises made promises kept and also about what really matters. The people there in exile in that case in Persia, how did they get there? How did the people end up there? And what is the road back from exile in Persia back to the promised land? That's, is a key underlying message throughout a book that's supposedly godless even though you have no specific mention of god it is a book that does not exist without the promises of god and the faithfulness of god you've been listening to a discussion at halal fellowship if you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info.